Thaddeus Ellenberg presents Casual Friday. Written and read by Thaddeus Ellenberg. Now let's see, where were we? Oh yeah, I was tasked with taking the world to the moon through the magic of movies. The United States had plunged itself headlong into an international pissing match, and the Cold War was heating up. Now, with a military blooper smack dab in the heart of Asia's rice bowl, the country would need a distraction bigger than Andy Taylor in color. A voyage through space was just the ticket. In the summer of 1966, my studio put on laminate pictures, built as a front for faking the moon landing, was flourishing as Hollywood's best-kept secret. Our production, Goop from Space, was in full-on production mode, and the soundstage was bustling with a flurry of deception. It was exhilarating. The art department had delivered us a moon worthy of the real thing. The surface was made of King's kitty litter, trucked in for a family film we did fake posters for, then to cover our tracks, wrote and produced for just under a mill. Mr. Biscuit's Big Day starred one Freddie Douglas and that Russian blue sensation Binksy, the it cat of 1966, which we lured from the alley behind the studio. The moon rocks came from that city by the bay in the back room of a little psychedelic shop at the corner of Haight Nashbury, and work came to a screeching lull. The ideas were plentiful, but nobody wrote them down. Crater fragments were shipped in from our new Aloha neighbors to the west, Hawaii, which remains the only place on the planet you can get chocolate with macadamias. We had four versions of the lunar module. One replica to scale for exteriors, two half modules, and one painted black and white that we would shoot in color. We spared no expense. In fact, we were the only studio in town providing our production assistance with furnished offices and annual allowances for cosmetic work. The guys in the mailroom got new Cadillacs and designer hair pieces for those that fell victim to God calling it a day at 445. The secretaries were paid by the word, and our riggers were fashioned with the finest flannels from Europe. And it was all paid for by the American people. Progress comes at a price, or it don't come at all. I purchased the haunted home of silent film swashbuckler Max Kaplan in Whitley Heights and used the guest house as my office. With a measly five bedrooms, fireplace, and pool with grotto, it was tight, but quaint, and free of distraction. At night, I toiled away, revising pages and blaring freeform jazz for focus and clarity. The words flowed from me with harmonious sustain, like the kamikaze precision of Leonard Tate rolling over the snares, or the chaotic wail of Rex Redding's heavenly sax. And that was just the screen direction. 
Within nine short months, I had conceived the perfect smokescreen for our Goop from Space cover. It was half a page and depicted a ship of celestial sanitation workers from Earth with ties to the Galactic Teamsters, dumping the tidal goop into space. It was masterful. NASA had chosen their flight crew and sent over the headshots. They were calling the mission Apollo 1, which was a shout out to soul greats like James Brown and Patti LaBelle. We all thought it was pretty cool. To play the astronauts, aka Space Garbage Man number one and Space Garbage Man number two, as well as Space Garbage Man number three, who would be in the scene and credited but not remembered, I phoned up my old standbys, Frank Pear and James Eldridge from Barefoot. They had just the right amount of dashing to play American astronauts. They had two bug haircuts and were tan. That was pretty much it. But it was 35 years later and they were living up their twilight years being pampered in the lavish confines of the Beverly Springs rest home. So I staked out Grommans to find their 40-year-old doubles for what I had envisioned as some sort of a merrily we roll along shtick. Only successful. What can I say? I was loyal. Some would say to a fault. At the end of the day, I had signed an accountant from Arkansas and a bank teller with the same size feet as Vera Miles. Then I cut my friends a check for their time and gave them both an associate producer credit on the film. But to play the moon landing's heroic command pilot, I would need a personality that was out of this world. So I booked a first-class ticket to the closest place a sunny West Coast native would look for otherworldly beings and went searching for a star. New York City. I knew the first man on the moon had to have a sizzle only Broadway could provide. George Caldwell had the hottest name on the block. We would have to use his birth name, which had a lot more syllables. He was performing in two shows, Matchmaker in Love and Racy Dinner Theater, which was a show about abortion. Caldwell was brilliant. I laughed. I cried. I was even a little turned on. We got to know each other real well inside what I thought was a camera obscura in a smutty theater on 42nd at 7th Avenue. Then never wanted to see each other again. So I returned to Hollywood with his twin brother, Buford, who had no acting experience whatsoever. But it didn't matter. He looked the part, and I could look him in the eye without throwing up a little. We had our cast. Then one day I got a call on the stage phone, the red one. I rolled my eyes and began channeling strength. It was the Rocket Man, our government gopher and a pain in my ass. Reuben, it's Rockets. Weird. I thought it was Dorothy Sims inviting me into her dressing room. We've been talking things over and we're not thrilled about the title. What, Goop from Space? We were thinking Exodus Earth. Apparently, Houston had been kicking their heels, waiting out the clock or something, and thought they were movie producers. Like a cat on cashmere, I lost it. I fired the next person I saw and kicked them to the curb with keys to a slightly used Oldsmobile and a check for a deposit on a bodega. The economy was ripe for a small business, but they would have to put in the effort. I was livid. Oh, and another thing. 
Rockets was just warming up. It's about the photo. In trying to keep our plot contained, I sealed up every exit of the stage each day and manned them with armed guards and riot gear. Interesting fact, those guards would go on to serve for the Ohio National Guard in 1970. And with yet another device designed to help us appear above board, we ran daily studio tours with big trams and androgynous guides with perfect teeth. 20 tours a day, seven days a week. Apparently some Carolina rube snapped a photo of one of the guards and that barren big mouth Mamie Dickers wrote it up in her column. Washington freaked out. Some of the higher ups see it as unwanted attention. Rocket said before pausing for a sip of what sounded like tab. Hollywood's a sewing circle. We want to move the operation to Burbank. Burbank. I saw red. It's a matter of confidentiality, which is this new umbrella term we've adopted for when people ask us reasonable questions. Flash forward. The United States government was about to clean house and really start cashing in on this whole capitalism thing. And we're talking mucho dinero, so money was no object. But they would need help. Their first recruit, Hollywood. Initially with me, then with that bonzo lover Ronald Saddlesore Reagan. The two would get along nicely. Reagan was a yes man, but I fought back. I'll be goddamned if I was going to commute over the hill. Now you listen here and you listen good, you pocket protector with a pulse. My booster's ignited. It's like 30 minutes each way, I screamed into the phone in front of the crew. And that's on a good day. I went for the jugular. Plus, you can't get a decent stake in the valley. And if you think for one flippin' second, I'm going to reduce myself to a charcoal ribeye with ketchup like some rabbi with an inefficiency for grilling, you've got another thing coming, Jack. Like anyone of once great wealth and prestige, I expected a similar quality of excellence now in my second circle. If I had learned one thing during my time in the pits, it's that it sucked. And I would avoid it like how all of Hollywood in the 1950s avoided actor Donovan Bloomberg's all-red Fourth of July party. Rockets continued. We're hearing skepticism among the public, and we want to nip that chatter in the bud. That's great, Rockets, but what's that got to do with me? We want to do the show live. Live? The word echoed with weight. I dropped the phone and stabled myself, trembling at the thought. There was no notion more terrifying to an obsessive director. Suddenly my vision went soft and my body fell limp. I collapsed to the studio floor and my light faded to darkness. I had been diagnosed with a migraine and ordered to stay in bed for a week. I got the rest I needed, but mainly just wore a robe for seven days. After feeling able, I sat in the window with a pontificating pose. Shoot the fake moon landing live? Were they insane? We were projecting to deceive an audience of 400 million that day. The fact of the matter was crippling. I was going to need time. So I took a month and got my head straight. I sat by overcast pools in discreet sweaters and read cloth-bound books in unorthodox places. I closeted my dancing shoes and cut parties cold turkey. Then I called up an old buddy of mine, Gordon Gear, 
who was a big deal in radio back in the day. Famously for his Saturday night WOK broadcast recorded live from the Peking Karaoke Cafe in Chinatown. As well as his directorial work on Brunch with Bruce and Ethel, which was a talk radio program about car maintenance. I was seeking words of wisdom. He said, Mickey. Gordon had been out to lunch for years and forgot to leave a warm body at reception, if you know what I mean. Mickey, speak from the heart. Be true to yourself. And remember, blanch the Brussels sprouts before seasoning them. He was right. I could never get them to restaurant tenderness. But more importantly, I had been ignoring my impulses. It was my shoot-from-the-hip essence that had taken me to the top in the first place. My thirst for innovation, with which I quenched by any means necessary. Who had I become? A puppet doing the government's bidding? I had lost my loose values. My edge. My voice. Right then and there, I accepted the challenge of shooting live, but vowed to do it my way. I was going to propel mankind into the 21st century the Reuben Merriweather way, with style, extravagance, and a complete disregard for the material. Two months later, thanks to government bribes and a bundle of six weeks all-expense-paid trips to Mexico that were given out to the city's entire building division department, including permanent officials and inspectors, Laminate Pictures cut the ribbon on its new Burbank Studios. It was a sheer marvel. I was proud to call it my idea. The stages were equipped with state-of-the-art control rooms for live recordings and broadcasts, in addition to high-capacity stadium seating in the event one day everything leaked out and American audiences took to this kind of deception as a form of entertainment. Stage 24, the studio's jewel, was constructed with an unprecedented 60-foot-high dome rising into the sky. Perfect for Laminate's now large-scale retooled science fiction project we were calling Exodus Earth. And when I say we, I'm speaking on behalf of the slate and several scripts that were holding open a door. And even those, Exodus Earth was in quotes. Inside, the lunar surface had never looked so grand. Watching the command module being lowered for the first time from the observatory onto what we were calling Moon 2.0, which none of us understood, was an experience that could only be described as unrestrained awe. It was magnificent and truly out of sight. Also, I had had a cup of mushroom tea with my morning marmalade and was tripping pretty good. At that moment, my feet left the stage. Floating and spinning through space in a perfectly placed Act 2 dream sequence, I swirled about the stars with the wave of my hand, then plucked the moon from the cosmos and swallowed it. My body liquefied and my face morphed. Our bodies merged into one, my eyes blinking craters. I continued falling before coming to rest upon a starless plane. Lifeless, time accelerated. My body was born from the soil and copies followed. 
Villages went up, towns, cities. We united with a distant civilization, then joined hands and sang something public domain. We broke bread, we loved, we fought, we divided. Then there was nothingness. I was alone in space, screaming in silence and surrounded by infinite emptiness. No shit, it was a bad trip. My body filled with doubt. I panicked and focused only on my panicking intensifying. I gasped for air and found myself strapped to a reclined chair in a theater in my brain, forced to watch images projected onto the inside wall of my skull. Homes decimated by blasts of orange tent. Vacant playground equipment turned to dust. Annihilation. Uncle Sam being blown by an obscure figure wearing my favorite trousers. Birth. Death. Repeat. I screamed with horror as my audio dropped in and out of sync and I returned to Earth and my feet back to the stage. The hallucination subsided and I found myself wrapped up in the set's colossal backdrop curtain. The universe was speaking to me and every word was coming in loud and clear. I was on the right track. Rehearsals were coming along beautifully, and as much as I hated to admit it, the extra time in the car each morning was nice. I knew every song on the radio. But on January 27, 1967, tragedy struck when all three Apollo 1 astronauts were killed during a launch rehearsal. It was a devastating blow. We would have to recast. I had too much artistic integrity to jeopardize the authenticity of the conspiracy. Firing Buford and those other two was the hardest thing I ever had to do. Was it a setback? You bet. But nothing that couldn't be cured with a lively montage showcasing the passage of time. Hit it! The next two years would be a seemingly endless cycle of casting and recasting in the wake of NASA's efforts to preserve its dignity like a middle-aged man being walked in on while taking a bath. After the Apollo 1 disaster, blasting onto the scene in natural succession, were Apollo missions four through six. These were unmanned flights using NASA's new fancy schmancy rocket, the fully loaded Saturn S series. Like a starter rocket, you could bang up a little. 1968 saw Apollo 7 and the return of the astronauts. For the first time in history, the country watched Americans in space puttering around in low orbit. And NASA dangled that low-hanging fruit in front of audiences like a shiny object and got the ratings boost they were looking for. We responded by putting out a casting call for a hundred little people to play sunflowers in some flying car musical and dress them up as funny moon people. It was on. NASA started getting closer to the moon, so we filled it with dancing girls. They reached the moon's orbit, we started rumors about their sons wearing dresses. The sands were racing through the hourglass, and America watched on with bated breaths, hoping for a glimpse of glory. Nineteen sixty-nine. I was seventy-six years old, and everything was different. Hippies drove around in Nazi cars, and the Beatles concluded their extraordinary five-year-long trial of a promising hair-growth pharmaceutical. It was a cultural awakening. The production was bigger and more colorful than ever. Our small yet ever-changing cast of cosmic flyboys 
had grown into an ensemble and was supported by 200 extras and a chorus line of curvy green-stemmed Martians. They were sure to drive Earthmen wild. But we didn't want to just do something that was showy. Times were changing and we were changing with them. But we would need a message that could counter our moon's grandiose and tempting facade. Civil rights, Vietnam, the labor movement, these would not be addressed. Instead, we gave audiences what they wanted, the issues that would have them clamoring for years. And at the top of the list, serial murderers. They were captivating and sexualized, which was a little weird. In the summer of 69, the Zodiac Killer was getting its rocks off by slaying couples in California, and the public ate it up with a spoon. The Zodiac was even taking credit for stuff he didn't even do, like people dying in their sleep or having a heart attack trying to put on summer shorts. And it didn't get more American than that. The moon needed a killer to convey our country's loss of innocence or something. Also, the fast food industry was skyrocketing, so we conceived the lunar restaurant chain Moon Burger, which was a treat for moon families after their moon worship, even though their moon children weren't behaving and didn't deserve it. Additionally, the pill was outlawed by the Pope, and its safety was called into question by leading manufacturers of condoms. Women were up in arms, but not as much as men. The moon would have to be a skin-to-skin -skin hedonistic haven, representing free love with zero repercussions. These three things would serve as the core of our moon landing commentary. It would play beautifully against the lavish musical number I wrote and choreographed for the moon's inhabitants upon the astronaut's arrival, which included 34 planned sweeping crane shots and five costume changes. And in the roles of the visiting Apollo 11 Earthlings, who were publicly announced on January 7, 1969 to be astronauts Neil Armstrong and Buzz Iron Fist Aldrin, I was lucky enough to snag the two rising stars from the acclaimed 1966 experimental underground film, Motel Drag, by influential visual artist and outed grape tickler, Teddy Toots. Their names were Poppins and Neon, and they were members of Toots' famous pool of young, rough-faced amateur actors known as Teddy's Tots. Poppins and Neon both came from wealthy New York families, so we could save money on an elaborate alibi since nobody would come looking for them. Everything was set. Our moon was honest, intelligent, and goddamn spectacular. It was the moon America deserved. But I couldn't help think things had gotten a bit muddled. Had I let the project get away from me? I knew at the time I was talking crazy, but still, I couldn't let the crew overhear my soliloquy. I needed to talk to someone. So I donned an ensemble of white baggy linen and caught the first single-engine death trap to the harsh, tropical wildernesses of the Caribbean to look up an old friend. I scoured the colorful shantytown of Trinidad de Cuba and sought help from the locals. El Presidente, I asked one of the first ten men I saw with a bicycle and a chicken. The sadness of their condition revealed itself with one powerful cliché after another. Suddenly, a boy of 29 with shiny loafers and an unfiltered cigarette, leaning against a brand-new 30-year-old convertible, got my attention and ushered me up the hill to a large colonial plantation house. I was greeted at the door by a sultry Cuban dish in red, 
a harlot find silks. Then not a moment too soon, I found a familiar face. Weather. It was Kennedy rocking a beard and hair down to his shoulders. And so there we were, drinking rum and smoking big fat cigars while reminiscing. But there were girls around, so it wasn't weird. So Weather, what brings you down this way? Hey, how'd that moon thing go? He asked, brushing the hair from his face with ambiguous sexuality. Actually, Jack, I could use some guidance. Need some umph, huh? Here, try this old isolated soda pop ingredient that's exploding down south, he said, and tapped out a line of cocaine onto a 400-year-old Louis de Bastal cocaine table. It was a billion miles per hour in the opposite direction. I was thinking more of a sit-down with mission control, I said to be polite and not come across too eager. Okay, maybe just a taste. And I didn't sleep for five days. I built a cabana shirtless and using only a saw, then met five of Kennedy's eight new families. It was the pickup I was looking for. Upon my return, I took the project up a notch and matched its energy with unkempt facial hair and loud Hawaiian shirts, and made sure to remain on edge for most of the day. Things got kooky and rehearsals ran round the clock. I demanded perfection. We were on the cusp of brilliance, and quite possibly an entirely new visual medium altogether, as our moon landing had taken the form of six different genres being executed simultaneously. Also, there would be multiple scenes of live sex and undiluted penetration. But we would do it tastefully. We were redefining space travel. But it was all over. I had been at the helm of a ghost production, shrouded in fog and fueled by a craft service table of narcotics and a crew whose names I barely knew. And emerging from the fog, an iceberg as big as the moon. I'll never forget the day I walked onto that stage and saw the grainy black and white images of my future being played out by a glorified ape in a big white monkey suit. The set was at a standstill and every pair of eyes were glued to a monitor. The static-filled voice of Neil Armstrong reverberated out to every corner of the stage and my heart sank. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Motherfucker. It was good. It was real good. It was downright perfect. And I was about to be sick. Crew cuts and Punchy had sucked all the air out of the room and left us with nothing but misery. No cheers. No champagne. No ticker tape parade with a Midwest beauty queen. On the screen, they gloated and rubbed our faces in it. All that prancing around out there, we knew who it was meant for. The studio quietly dispersed like a deflated mayoral campaign, and I was in a state of disbelief. Like the decades, the cast and crew washed over me with a solitary, consoling pat on the back. And that was it. We were shut down. Kill the lights, exchange phone numbers, secure another job before leaving the set. 
We had created a multi-million dollar studio with countless successful franchises and impressive quarterly earnings and had nothing to show for it. I had failed. In the end, NASA faked the moon landing on their own on some soundstage out in the desert, using a production company that primarily made PSA films about teenage delinquency. The space program would go on to make five sequels, each of them more ridiculous than the last. But by 1972, the moon was played and the damage had already been done. It was the beginning of the end for Hollywood. In the following years, the studio system would take back the reins and the money men would reclaim their thrones. Independent visionaries would be given the heave-ho and directions to the freeway, and they would not be direct. It was the death of cinematic artistry and the birth of risk management and film school loans. As for me, what can I say? I had a good run. But like Icarus, I flew too close to the sun on wings of celluloid, and it was time for me to exit frame. Now my life has been diminished to a sparse bungalow a mile off the PCH, and a part-time position washing dishes for some chicken place with a casual attitude towards salmonella. I am on my final reel. There are no more scores or chorus lines of pretty girls. No big premieres or Hollywood soirees. No grand farewell or meaningful revelation. The end for Reuben Merriweather is near. Fade to black, roll credits. Wait, I got it. A journey to the center of the earth. Huh? Huh? Would that be great? Bunch of molten rock people dancing about? Is there a government agency for that? Oh, or Bigfoot. No, lizard people. Yeah, lizard people. The scales walk among us. Cold-blooded killer. You know they control the entire planet, right? This has been a production of Thaddeus Ellenberg's Casual Friday. Written and read by Thaddeus Elmberg, with an introduction by Nicole Kalasich, and artwork by Adrian Lobel. This series is independently produced by Thaddeus Ellenberg and Will Scoville. To find more episodes and information, visit our website at casualfridaypodcast.org or email us at contact.casualfriday at gmail.com.